beautiful career, or maybe excelling at sports or making beautiful music. But the problem is, our dreams don't always work. Our hopes sometimes fail. Some wonderful people have yet to find a spouse. And for those who have, some of them still struggle with infertility. Or perhaps your great business ideas just don't pay the bills. And so that hope, that dream can remain unfulfilled and can feel crushed. So as a kid, I played tennis like six days a week, hours a day. I was working hard to be this champion level, world-class tennis player. And I won a couple of the tournaments, but every time I went to a big tournament, like nationals or something, I was beaten fairly early on. And every time, my dreams were crushed. So what about you? Do you have broken dreams? As a church, we're studying through the book of Job, which is about a man who, in the beginning of the book, has all of his dreams, all of his hopes crushed. His ten kids die. All of his possessions are either stolen or destroyed. His health is ruined. And he has to live in constant pain. And then his three friends come and torment him with words in this long, protracted argument about who's at fault. And by the way, his biggest loss is that God seems to have abandoned him. So what is a person to do when their hopes are crushed? What do you do when you lose everything? How do you carry on? The truth is that if you are able to carry on, then there is something you still hope for. Something that still makes you believe it's worth keeping going. And so the crucial question before us today is, when your dreams are crushed, what do you hope in? Let me give you a simple example. Um, when my dreams of being a world-class tennis player failed, um, my new hope for life success shifted. I began to focus on my academics. I replaced my failed hope with a new hope. But what happens if the new hope fails? What do you cling to when your hopes or your replacement hopes fail? Or what about if you even think they might fail when you ask yourself questions like, what do I do if my spouse dies or my kids? What happens if I get fired or my health fails? What do you turn to for hope when your treasured dreams are threatened or even destroyed. That's why the sermon is titled, If God is your treasure, then your hope is secure. Why is it so secure? Because he is the only hope, the only dream that cannot be taken from you. And today, we will see Job finding this hope. This is a big deal, because Job has been pretty hopeless so far in this book. And finally, finally, he finds something solid to cling to. And I am really excited to share it with you today. So let me give you a quick outline as to what to expect from the sermon. We'll be stepping through, the, through Job 18 and 19, which is on page 274 of the Church Bible, if you go one of these. Firstly, we'll look at Bildad's speech in chapter 18, where we will see that he offers no hope. And then we will look at Job's speech in chapter 19, where he will find a solid hope. And then we'll talk about some application. All right, before we get to the text, let's pray and ask God's blessing upon us. Let's pray. Thank you, Father God, for this opportunity to study your word. Lord, it is a great blessing that you have made yourself known to us. You have explained the principles of how you interact with us in your word. And ultimately, we see that we have so much hope. 
Lord, please open our hearts to see you as our treasure. Open our ears to hear your word that we might be changed and look more like you. Give me the grace to preach faithfully and clearly. And Lord, may your name be praised in all that is done today. Amen. Please turn with me now to Job 18. We will read the first four verses. And again, it's on page 274 of the Church Bible. All right. Job 18, 1 through 4. Then Bildad the Shuhite answered and said, How long will you hunt for words? Consider, and then we will speak. Why are we counted as cattle? Why are we stupid in your sight? You who tear yourself in anger, shall the earth be forsaken for you, or the rock removed out of its place? So we're now on point one of your outline. Bildad's speech, the evidence is overwhelming. You have no hope. Now, in this first section, verses 1 through 4, Bildad basically says, Don't insult us. Consider the wisdom of the order of the universe. Now, remember, we're in the middle of this long debate between these parties, the Job and his three friends. It's back and forth. And verse 3, Bildad asks Job why Job thinks they're as stupid as cows. And in verse 4, he asks Job if the earth should be forsaken or the rock removed, basically implying that the principles that Job is asking them to forsake, they're as solid as rock and as permanent as the earth. Bildad is saying, don't insult us. Consider the wisdom of the order of the universe. And then he goes on to dispense this wisdom. And for the sake of time, I'm not going to read the next 15 verses. I'm going to give you a summary. In verse 5, he starts with, Indeed, the light of the wicked is put out. All of this wisdom that he's about to dispense is about what happens to the wicked. Let me give you a summary of what he says is going to happen to the wicked. Bildad says that in darkness, the wicked are trapped, terrorized, devoured, and forgotten. Let me show you how I got that. In verse 5 and 6, he talks about how the wicked are without light. In 7 through 10, how the wicked are caught in their own traps. And 11 through 14, how the wicked man is terrorized by even the king of terrors. 15 and 16, about how the wicked are devoured and destroyed. And then 17 through 20, talk about how the wicked are forgotten. And even if they are remembered, it's a horror story to everyone who hears. All that says that in darkness, the wicked are trapped, terrorized, devoured, and forgotten. Now, did you see how all of this can be applied to Job's life? How this is either happening to him or happened to him. Job is lost in the darkness of confusion. He is caught in a trap he can't get out of. He is terrorized all day and night, and a lot by his friends right now. Job is devoured. He's lost everything, and his flesh is decaying away. And it looks like Job is going to be forgotten, because everyone who knows him is either dead or against him. Now, have a look at verse 21. As Bildad now closes his speech. Verse 21 says, Surely such are the dwellings of the unrighteous. Such is the place of him who knows not God. Once again, Bildad tells you who who all of this will happen to. The unrighteous and the one who knows not God. The point of Bildad's speech is fairly simple. He is once again clinging to his karma system. The karma system, or the karma worldview, is where good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people. So if bad things are happening to you, Job, then you must be a bad person. 
Now this is not new. Bildad has used this argument before in chapter 8. And so the question should be, what has changed? Well, I I can think of two things that have changed. Firstly, the tone has changed. Last time, Bildad, he made this point, but he used comparatively softer words and kinder analogies. He appealed to tradition. This time, he might as well be describing the eternal sufferings of the damned in hell. It's terrifying. The second thing that's changed is the application has changed. Last time, Bildad told Job to plead with God for mercy, and then God would restore him and fill his mouth with laughter. This time, Bildad doesn't give Job any hope. He predicts, in fact, that Job will be destroyed and forgotten. He doesn't give him any hope, any way of avoiding this fate. Remember the title of the sermon, If God is your treasure, then your hope is secure. Does Bildad offer Job any hope, any security? What does Bildad do for the man sitting in a heap of broken dreams and burnt out hopes? Bildad says, it's going to get worse. Comforting, isn't it? By the way, the fact that Bildad is repeating more forcefully his karma worldview tells us he is more interested in being right than actually listening to and comforting Job. And in a moment, we will see Job's response to the speech, and then we will see the effects of the speech. When we see those effects, we'll be able to draw some clear application. But before we get to Job's speech, let me just quickly show you why Bildad is wrong, right? If there was ever any doubt in your mind. Yes, it is true that the wicked will be punished and will thus suffer. But that does not mean that only the wicked suffer. Look at Jesus. The only perfectly righteous man to walk this earth, and yet he suffered immensely. Therefore, Bildad's karma system is proven false by Jesus' suffering. The wisdom of the order of the universe is that the maker of the universe suffered. So bad things can happen to good people, or more importantly, good things can happen to bad people. Now, there's a lot more we could say about Bildad's speech, but for the sake of time, I'm going to move on to Job's speech. And in fact, as a general point, because we're studying Job in big gulps, it's not possible for the preachers to hit every verse every week. And so I encourage you to read the text beforehand and so you can come prepared to really focus on the main point with the preacher on every Sunday. Okay, let's get to Job's speech, Job's speech, which is truly astounding, and I am super excited about it. And so now we're on point two of the outline. Job's speech, because God is my treasure, my hope is secure. Let's read the first six verses. So Job 19, verses 1 through 6. Then Job answered and said, How long will you torment me and break me in pieces with words? These ten times you have cast reproach upon me. Are you not ashamed to wrong me? And even if it, and even if it be true that I have erred, My error remains with myself. If indeed you magnify yourself against me and make my disgrace an argument against me, know then that God has put me in the wrong and closed his net about me. In the first five verses, Job tells us the effect of Bildad's speech. Words like wrong, reproach, brokenness, torment. In fact, in verse 4, Job says that even if everything you say is true and I am wrong, then I am a wrong man alone 
in an ash dump. I'm not hurting anybody. So why are you going out of your way to torment me, you bullies? And in verse 5, he continues saying that they're bullying him to make themselves feel good. And so here we see how comforting Bodad's karma system is to someone who is suffering. The short answer, it's not comforting. And we'll get back to this in the application section. But moving on, in chapter 6, sorry, in verse 6, Job wants his friends to be very clear as to who is responsible for his suffering. Verse 6 says, Know then that God has put me in the wrong and closed his net about me. Bildad said Job had fallen into his own trap and that he was tearing himself apart. Job says, No, God is doing this to me. And then from verse 7 to 22, Job is now going to describe what God and men are doing to him. At this point, it's very helpful to ask the question, why is Job going to describe this again? I mean, we're in chapter 19 now. He's talked a fair bit about his sufferings already. Why is he going to tell us again? And I can think of two good reasons why Job is going to tell us more about what's going on with him. The first is that, remember, this is an argument or discussion And Bildad presented proof of Job's wickedness, and now Job is going to present proof that he's not at fault. He's the victim. Basically, you want proof? I give you proof. And a second reason is that, remember, Job is going to get to this real incredible hope at the end of this chapter. But first, he's going to show us what drove him to that hope, because every other hope failed. And he's going to show us that. Okay. Let's look at Job's proofs and his broken dreams. Let's read verses 7 through 10. Verse 7. Behold, I cry out, violence, but I am not answered. I call for help, but there is no justice. He has walled up my way so that I cannot pass. He has set darkness upon my paths. He has stripped from me my glory and taken the crown from my head. He breaks me down on every side and I am gone. My hope he has pulled up like a tree. Job has no answers, no justice, no freedom, no light, no glory, no authority, no strength, no hope. No hope. And who did this to him? God did. Let's read verse 11 and 12. He breaks me down on every side and I'm gone. Oh, sorry, that's 10. Verse 11. He has kindled his wrath against me and counted me as his adversary. His troops come on together. They have cast their siege ramp against me and encamped around my tent. So what's going on here? Picture the scene with me for a moment, okay? So you decide you need some peace and quiet, so you go camping in a secluded valley somewhere. And one morning you wake up, and instead of waking up to the sounds of forest animals, you wake up to the sounds of boots and engines and tense voices And you open your tent flap and you peek out and you take a step out. And there's a guy with a gun pointing at you. And behind him is a whole battalion of soldiers pointing weapons at you. To your left, that nice lake, it's not got an aircraft carrier in it with a battleship next to it trained its guns on you. Behind you, you just heard a crunch. A tank rolled over your tent and is now pointing its gun at you. At this point, you look at the soldier and say, "Um, I think you got the wrong guy. Sauron is in the next valley. Now, you rightly laugh, because this is over the top. At this point, it's just ridiculous. You don't need that much force for one camper. 
That is how Job feels. To him, his suffering is just plain ridiculous. Any hope of God being on his side is just silly. His hope is crushed. And that's not all. God is doing more things to him. Let's look at verses 13 through 19. Verse 13, he has put my brothers far from me, and those who knew me are wholly estranged from me. My relatives have failed me. My close friends have forgotten me. The guests in my house and my maidservants count me as a stranger. I have become a foreigner in their eyes. I call to my servant, but he gives me no answer. I must plead with him with my mouth for mercy. My breath is strange to my wife, and I am a stench to the children of my own mother. I lost my place. (laughs) Verse 18. Even young children despise me. When I rise, they talk against me. All my intimate friends abhor me, and those whom I loved have turned against me. What we see here is that all of Job's earthly relationships are ruined, and they've been ruined by God. From the young children who despise him, to the guest who doesn't even remember his hospitality, to the servant who has no mercy, let alone obedience to the relatives that fail him and treat him as something rotten. His friends forget him and his close friends abhor him and even his wife doesn't know him anymore. How does that sound to you? You may think you have relational problems. And perhaps you do. But if your relational problems are like a punch in the face, Job's relational problems are like a nuclear bomb. The point of this is that any hope, any comfort Job could have gotten from his friends and family is ruined. His hope is again crushed. Let's continue on in verse 20 through 22. My bones stick to my flesh. My my bones stick to my skin and to my flesh. And I've escaped by the skin of my teeth. Have mercy on me. Have mercy on me, O you, my friends. For the hand of God has touched me. Why do you, like God, pursue me? Why are you not satisfied with my flesh? God is attacking him. Everyone else is either ignoring him or despising him. But maybe, just maybe, it could be bearable if he still had his health. Nope. For Job, he feels barely alive. Any hope that he might have had in feeling physically strong is dashed. Job's in the dark. He doesn't understand. He's trapped, frightened, terrorized, devoured. And at this rate, he thinks he's going to be forgotten. And so he cries out for mercy, but not from God, who his friends told him to cry out to. He cries out for mercy from his friends. And once again, we see the effects of bashing people with a karma worldview. It's like going to a funeral and then beating up all the sad, despairing people just because I think I'm doing God's work. It's horrible. And so where does this leave Job? God is against him, so is everyone else. His health is failing. His friends currently torment him. What can Job possibly still hope in? What does Job want that hasn't already been destroyed? He's going to tell us. Let's look at verse 23. 23 and 24. 
Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. Oh, that with an iron pen and lead, they were engraved in the rock forever. Job wants his story to last forever. Why? Let's read in verse 25. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. So Job wants his story to last forever, because then, at the end, someone will hear and act, and someone will redeem Job to fix this mess. Now, I will point out some really amazing things here. Notice that this Redeemer is currently alive and will still be alive at the end of time. Sounds a bit like God to me. And notice also that this Redeemer will stand upon the earth. He'll have a body like a man so he can stand. Sounds a bit like a man to me. The God-man. Do you see what Job is saying here? He realizes the need that his Redeemer needs to both have human and divine characteristics. That's what Jesus is, even if Job had never even met him or known his name yet. So let me pause here and tell you how Job got to this point. Because this is really interesting. In chapter 9, Job hoped for an arbiter to stand between him and God. But he decided that no such being existed. His hope was crushed. In chapter 16, Job hoped for a heavenly witness who will represent him to God. But he decided that even if such a witness were to exist, it would do him no good because he was going to die soon. And what good would a witness do to a dead man? And so his hope was again crushed. But here, in chapter 19, Job hopes again for a redeemer. And the difference here is that this redeemer is going to redeem him at the end, long after he's dead. But there's the same question. How is this good for him? How, what good does it do to have a redeemer who redeems you after you're dead? Let's look at verse 26 and 27. And after my skin has thus been destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. My heart faints within me. After destruction, Job says he will see God in the flesh. After death, Job says he will live to see God. So what do you call it when someone dies and then fully comes to life again? It's called resurrection. And this is not new for Job. In chapter 14, he hoped to escape God's wrath by dying. And so maybe God's wrath could pass over while he was dead and then he can come alive again. But he abandoned that hope. It was crushed because he believed that God's wrath was too strong to just go away while you're dead. But what happens if you have a redeemer who can sort out that anger, that wrath, and then you can die and come to life again? Maybe that could work. And let me break this down for you. So Job has a desire. He wants to be in close, happy relationship with God. But he has a problem. God is attacking him. And so he thinks of two solutions. Number one, hide. Number two, get help. Hide. How do you hide from God? Well, maybe dying works. If, when you're dead, the anger could pass away and then you can come to life again. Hide. Uh, get help. How does get help work? How do you get help against God? Who is the power to stop God's anger? And can this happen before you're dead? Job abandons hiding because he figures God's wrath is too strong to go away while you're dead. And he abandons getting help because even though someone could help him, maybe, it won't do him any good. He's going to die soon. 
Each solution apart doesn't work. But when you put them together, they can. Job can die and God's wrath can be stopped by a redeemer and then Job can come to life again and be in close, happy relationship with God. This is almost exactly the gospel. Written down hundreds, if not thousands of years before the New Testament was ever written down. I say almost because the gospel is actually better. Jesus Christ, our Redeemer, died for us so that God's wrath could be spent on him instead of us. And then he rose again and so will everyone who believes in him. So have you seen in the movies when they need to launch a nuclear missile or open that super secret room? You need two guys with two keys, each turning at the same time for the door to open or the missile to be launched. Likewise, we need both a Redeemer, Jesus, who can turn away God's wrath, and we need resurrection to be fully restored to God. Two things. This is the heart of the gospel, and it is the most amazing thing God ever did. I think it's amazing, and so does Job. He says, my heart faints. This is not the depressed fainting when you're disappointed. This is more like a desire so strong in your heart that you're just about to faint from the intensity of it. All of your hopes are pinned on this. And we know this because usually after Job expresses a hope, he's done it like four times already, he then spends the next two paragraphs telling you how it doesn't work and how he's just going to die and it's going to be miserable and horrible. This time he doesn't. He just says, my heart faints. Finally, after spending 19 chapters searching for something solid, he has found it. In the midst of suffering, some of the worst suffering anyone has ever suffered, he clings to the hope of being restored to God. Job doesn't cling to the hope of a brighter future. He's pretty sure he's going to die soon. He doesn't cling to the hope of restored relationships. Everyone's against him. He doesn't cling to the hope of business success. He's sitting in an ash dump. No business prospects. Job just hopes to be with God. This is the fear of the Lord. This is the main point of the book of Job. It's the fear of the Lord in the midst of suffering. In the midst of suffering, Job that he, Job shows that he fears God by valuing God so highly that the hope that he clings to is the hope to be with God. Job loved God more than he loved all the things God gave him. And he proves this because when they're all taken away, he still hopes for God. Now, my friends, Job is not actually successful at predicting the future. We know that he didn't die on that ash dump. We know that God heals him and greatly blesses him. But Job does show us what his foundation hope is. That hope upon which every other hope can be built. That hope that when all, all the other hopes are torn away, it's still there. That hope that kept him going, kept him sitting on that ash dump, trying so desperately hard to figure it out. What is your foundation hope? Now, we will talk about this more in the second application, which we'll get to in a moment. But for now, just consider this. Your suffering doesn't prove that you are wicked. But it does prove what your foundation hope is. It does prove what your true treasure is. I'm going to say that again. 
Your suffering doesn't prove that you're wicked, but it does prove what your foundation hope is. It does prove what your true treasure is. Now, this chapter is not done. Job has something to say to his friends now that he has discovered a hope that he can cling to. And now we're on the first point of application for those following along in the outline. Application one, don't torment yourself or others with a karma worldview. Let's read the last two verses, verses 28 and 29 of chapter 19. Verse 28. If you say how we will pursue him and the root of the matter is found in him, be afraid of the sword. For wrath brings the punishment of the sword that you may know there is a judgment. If you continue to cling to your karma worldview where bad things only happen to bad people, and good things only happen to good people, then be afraid. Be very afraid. Why? In verse 29, he tells you why they should be afraid, because there's a judgment and there is wrath. Job is saying that they will be judged and they will be found guilty, hence the wrath. So if you believe in a karma worldview, then bad things are going to happen to the guilty, and then the guilty will be punished and put to the sword, killed. See, I think Job is warning his friends... That unless you believe that good things can happen to bad people, then you should live in fear because every mistake, every failure, every evil thought will come back and kill you. Abandon karma or live in fear of a God who will destroy you for every and any sin, big or small. Embrace the gospel where a redeemer and resurrection can keep you in happy, close relationship with God in spite of your sins. Don't torment yourself with a karma worldview. If we always look at suffering and assume it to be the sufferer's fault, then we are unfit to provide comfort. But we do this to ourselves all the time because we like to believe we are in control. Let me show you how this works. If I believe my effort is the source of my success, then my failures are just a flaw in my effort. So, if I'm failing, then I just need to apply the right effort and then I fix it. And if I fix it, then it's my glory, my fame, I did it. And for those who can't fix it, can't fix their problems, well, I guess I'm just better than them. Pride. Pride is the leading motivation why we like a karma system. It's a good thing Jesus died for the sin of pride. It's a good thing that Jesus won for me the power to overcome pride and now I can rest humbly knowing that God is in control, not me. Men, if you would like to hear more about how to have this calm humility and yet still be very ambitious for the kingdom of God, come to the men's retreat next weekend. We will talk about this combination of ambition and humility in the life of Jesus. It's going to be great. So don't torment yourself or others with a karma worldview because after all, you're not in control. God is. And what did God, the one in control, do? Well, he provided a way for us sinners to be restored to him. And being restored to him, having God, that is true treasure. And we're now in the last point of the outline, application two. Place all your hope in God. He is the only truly secure treasure. Now remember what I said. Your suffering doesn't prove that you're wicked. But it does prove what your foundation hope is. It does prove what your true treasure is. 
Job's core treasure was not his family, though he loved them dearly. It was not his business, it was not his relationships, it was not his health. It was not even having a good feelings towards God. It wasn't about a good feeling of spiritual peace. No, that's not Job's core treasure. Job's core treasure was God himself. Even after losing everything, the one hope he still had was to be with God. Is that your hope? Job was confident in his hope. He was confident because of a redeemer and resurrection. Are your hopes that secure? Is your treasure God himself? Or is there something that you have that if you lost it would cause you to curse God for taking it from you? In closing, let me tell you how this truth impacted my life. I came to America nearly five years ago now to get a PhD in physics. And a little over a week ago, I gave my final thesis defense. Now, thesis defense is where you give a presentation on your research, and then your committee, your, the bunch of professors, can ask you anything they feel you should know, and you better be able to answer them, or you have failed to defend your thesis. And that could cause a delay in your graduation, or even get you removed from the PhD program if you fail badly enough. Now, in the days leading up to this event, I was really nervous. And when you're anxious, your fears get magnified, right? They get a little bigger than reality. So you think things like 15 years of dreaming, five years of effort, it's all on the line. I better do well or I'll get kicked out. I invited all my friends. Will I have friends after this? <laughs> so I want to share with you that during those anxious days, this passage in Job was an incredible comfort to me. It helped me realize that compared to the fact that I have God, the PhD is a small hope. If I walk into the thesis defense and am immediately reduced to a gibbering fool, I may lose the PhD, I may lose my friends, but I still have God. Because my Redeemer lives, nobody and nothing can take my God from me. And I wasn't even really suffering. I was just really nervous about a life dream. And yet this truth comforted me more than anything else. If God is your treasure, then your hope is secure. And so, place your hope in God, who is the only truly secure treasure. In Romans 8, verses 38 through 39, it says, For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers nor anything present, nor things to come, nor power, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let us pray. Lord God, the fact that Jesus has brought for us a secure hope in being fully restored to you Lord, this is amazing. This is, this is world-changing stuff. This is the, the pinnacle of your grace towards us. This is what keeps us going when everything else is dashed. Lord, please impress upon our hearts the wonder, the true treasure of you, to have the God that created everything as our inheritance because of the work of Jesus. Surely that trumps everything else. Lord, may that be our comfort in dark times. May it be our strength to go forward in tough times. May these words, may Job's example change us so that we live more closely secure in who you are and in the work of Christ. Bless us this week 
May your word be our light in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.